here and welcome to the first episode of my podcast, International Education Intel. I'm your host, uh, Sush Medikurke. The idea behind this uh, podcast is to discuss uh, the latest trends, issues, and success stories in international education with my fellow industry professionals and uh, those of the cold face, uh, so to speak, of this sector. Um, according to Education New Zealand data from 2017-18, uh, international education is a $5 billion industry and supports over 47,000 jobs. Um, it also generates additional value of $480 million from visiting friends and family. So this makes uh, international education the fourth biggest export market for New Zealand. And for the ITP sector in particular, it's uh, valued at uh, $670 million. So the impact of uh, COVID-19 on our industry is massive. So what can we do as a sector to overcome this? To discuss this and more, I'm joined by three wonderful guests today. We have uh, Beth Knowles, the International Director at ARA Institute of Canterbury. Uh, Beth has over 30 years experience in the international education area. Uh, she's worked in three government tertiary institutions in New Zealand prior to her appointment in 2008 as International Director of ARA. Uh, Beth's career spans the fields of business development, export education, marketing and recruitment, internationalization of tertiary institutions, staff and student exchange, and international education consultancy. Beth's uh, been actively involved in the development of the government's international education strategy. Our second guest is Philippa Jones, the Executive International Director at Eastern Institute of Technology. Philippa moved to New Zealand in 2012 to take up this role. Uh, Philippa's had an international focus throughout her career with a thread of global mobility. Prior to coming to New Zealand, her career included working in international education roles at three different UK universities and global operational management in global mobility services companies. She has traveled extensively and has lived in China, Hong Kong, Germany, and the UK. Our third guest is Farhana Nalar, Manager International Market Development at Unitech. Farhana heads the international recruitment team at Unitech. Uh, she is responsible for achieving Unitex internationalization goals through international market development and for delivering the international recruitment and partnership strategy in key markets across the globe. Farhana has, a number of, has held a number of roles in marketing, sales and business development across a diverse range of sectors, both in New Zealand and overseas. So I welcome everyone today. Uh, how are you guys doing? Very well. Thank you, sir. Great, thank you, Sushweta. All right, so look, th thanks for joining me, guys. The, the idea behind this podcast is uh, was initially to talk about international education in New Zealand in general, uh, but I guess the most pressing concern for all of us at the moment is COVID-19. So, so I thought, why not just start my first episode just discussing what, what's happened so far, what we can do, how we can overcome this, what's the impact, and, and just in general, uh, what can uh, what, what does international education? What would it look like post COVID, basically? Um, so let's let's start this. Uh, I mean, my, my first, I would say, uh, discussion point would be this is a black swan event, uh, right? Uh, something that's unusual that ha doesn't happen often. Um, but do you guys think they could have been better prepared uh, as a sector uh, for for something like this? 
Well, I think it's always what, easy to be wise after an event, and this event is still unfolding because we're really moving from a serious health threat to an economic crisis. And um, crisis results in improvements and innovation. So naturally, people resist change, and I think crisis forces change. So um, that's when we find out how adaptable the human race is. For us in the Christchurch and Canterbury region, um, we learned a lot from the earthquakes, which was a big crisis and had a huge impact on the economic development in our region. Uh, I think there's a difference here because it's a global um, event and it's affecting every country, not just a region in New Zealand. So one of the things that I think has been a big issue for our industry is a lack of investment in technology. And I think right. the use of technology in teaching and learning can really um, improve, broaden and enhance the experience. So that's a, an opportunity. There's also an opportunity for the investment in technology to make the application and enrollment experience better for students. So I think these are a couple of opportunities that this um, crisis is going to make New Zealand think about um, more seriously. But certainly the lack of investment in our industry, we've, we've created a lot of income for um, New Zealand and a lot of foreign exchange earnings, but there's not been a lot invested back by the government or even our institutions into um, things that would improve the experience mm. for students, I believe. Right. What, what do you think, Philippa? Well, yes, I agree. I agree with a lot of what Beth is saying. And also, you asked us, um, could we have been better prepared as a sector? Well, I don't think anybody could prepare for this kind of event. We do prepare um, against various risk factors that we identify, but this is a bit like falling off a precipice, isn't it? And so I don't think <laughs> you could really prepare for it. Although I do think, um, and this is echoing what uh, Beth has said, that in an ideal world, and having had uh, greater resource and financial capability, that we could, uh, as a sector, have had a more extensive inter-institutional partnership network um, and manage the uh, diversification, I guess, in terms of our markets better, but also had greater cross-collaboration between ITPs um, offshore. And I think this in stuff that I've been reading, um, it is a global issue, a global challenge, and it needs global solutions to it. And I think the education sector is uh, rightly positioned to work together to achieve that and, and to support that yeah. uh, recovery. But yeah, greater innovation and research in online delivery as well is something that we could have done. Um, had we had greater resource and financial capability to do so. But yeah, yes, I agree. Um, crisis forces change. You know, we're, we're very um, evolutionary and responsive as a sector within education anyway, because of the range of markets that we're working with and the continuous change that happens both within um, countries offshore, but also regulatory frameworks that support those. Rana? 
Yes, um, I, um, I think Philippa and uh, Beth have covered a lot of points. I guess um, this is the first time um, ever that, you know, borders have been closed across the globe in modern times. So that's the first mm -hmm. in, um, you know, or, or maybe um, in, in the in modern times, rather in, in recent history. So um, as an um, event of this nature is actually difficult to predict. Um, and um, the response is unthinkable you know, in, in terms of the situation. So, however, I, I guess we could have been better prepared, yes, um, with a more collaborative approach to our response to um, the disruption of the delivery of education. That's what has happened here. And um, mm -hmm. in terms of responses, we could never respond to um, an event like that which we never foresee. But if we had been prepared for the response of the disruption of the delivery of education, that would, as a sector, it would have held us, um, you know, a little more um, stronger, I guess. Um, but the opportunity is there now, you know, to think of new ways of doing things. Uh, um, you know, using virtual and digital as a, a means um, of uh, communication. Um, and I guess this opens up a world of opportunity as well. And as Faith um, rightly pointed out, out uh, given the right investment, um, we could hopefully uh, be more agile and uh, respond faster. Um, and go forwards. Yeah, yeah, it's I'm, interesting I'm that you mentioned the lack of investment in technology post the Christchurch earthquakes. Um, I mean, that, that, I know it's not the same, the earthquakes are not the same as the pandemic because there are no borders or everything closed, but I still feel that maybe we didn't learn all the lessons that we could from the Christchurch earthquakes. Um, I mean, you rightly pointed out the lack of investment in technology, I think is is a major issue uh, based on what happened in, during Christchurch quake. I mean, I think that could be a very significant investment in that space. So we could have been better prepared for something like this, uh, where we move to online learning quite seamlessly. Uh, I, I don't know if uh, that, that was something that could have happened uh, over the last decade, I guess. Yeah, I think um, New Zealand made a great investment in um, internet capability and the speed of our internet and, and things like that, I think. Um, that happened in the last decade, and that has, you know, held us in good stead in this situation. We'd be in a far worse situation if that infrastructure was mm. not in place. So I think that was a great move by the New Zealand government. But I do feel that institutions themselves, and some of it has been about students preferring face-to-face -face delivery. I think, you know, that a lot mm. of our international students and, and I know we're going to talk about the surveys that have taken place, but I think, mm -hmm. um, you know, there is a preference for being in a classroom with other students. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, but I, yeah. I think um, we could have still enhanced the experience. And, and Philippa made a really good point about um, institutional cooperation. And, you know, there's a lot mm -hmm. of ways of internationalizing education that don't involve travel. Um, you know, we can bring our institutional partners into our classrooms more frequently and things like that, I think could be quite exciting uh, developments that happen as a result of this crisis. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, the cross, uh, the cooperation is, is very interesting. I mean, the ITT sector has, has generally done well in terms of cooperating and collaborating yeah. with each other. But I think, do you, do you guys think this will force us to do that much more? I mean, considering we are all moving to the NZIST model, 
uh, that would happen anyway, I suppose. But I think something like this, I guess, do you think it will kind of really force us to cooperate and collaborate much more than what we are doing currently? I think so, certainly in terms of looking at the whole um, online delivery opportunity, that is going to drive a lot more um, collaboration in terms of getting qualifications approved and um, in terms of the ability to deliver that to wider audiences because of the resourcing implications that that's one of the challenges we've always faced as individual institutions our capacity to take advantage of opportunities yeah what do you think it would look like i think at the moment we're We've scrambled to put what are face-to-face -face lessons online, which is not really the same as online learning. So I think that's an issue. And the longer this crisis goes on where the students can't go back to the classroom, I think the more of an issue that will become, especially when you get to the assessment stage, um, that, that will become more of an issue. It's already an issue in our English language program, the New Zealand Certificate in English Language, because it's very difficult uh, to assess English language online. Um, there's some plagiarism and that kind of issue that comes up. So I think there does need to be some investment in the technology to make the experience better for the student but also better for the teacher as well yeah but I do think a lot of teachers are coming up with you know innovative and creative solutions to that which so it's stretching their minds in terms of changing the way in which we assess students as well to ensure that we're they're achieving the same outcomes as they would as if they were studying face to face yeah definitely but I think um you know that's that's the crisis that's caused that and it would have been less yes. stressful for everybody if that had been worked on prior to being in a crisis situation <laughs> yeah yeah and how how are your students coping uh, especially international students with with uh, this change with change or move to online learning uh, rather than the face to face uh, campus uh, study abroad experience that that actually signed up for I think it's a bit variable. I've got some very good feedback from students where they say they feel this is the way the world's going and they're learning a lot of skills that will be applicable in the workplace um, in the future. So I've had some really good feedback from that respect. I've also heard that students are finding it very tiring. Yes. Yes, that's true. And also, I guess, you know, as young people, they are quite used to the online world. So they adapt faster than, you know, um, I guess, um, in, in, an older student. Um, so I think, I guess from their point of view, what they miss is this, their campus interaction and their friends. But otherwise, in terms of the online learning, mm -hmm. they really adapted to it and um, are doing the best they can, um, given that is the practical situation. Yeah, I agree. We're hearing our students uh, our international students are certainly um, successfully coping with studying online and actually we've even had feedback to say that they feel they ha it gives them greater access to their teachers. Yes. 
that's definitely feedback that we've got as well. True. Yeah, that's really yeah, I mean, good. The recent, uh, online... Sorry, but uh, go ahead. No, I just was agreeing with Philippa and Fahana that that's really good that they mm. feel that the teaching staff are very accessible. Yes, mm. and um, what we've also done is we've got a learner outreach program where um, you know we've got staff calling the students as well and you know um, mm. so having a closer engagement with them. So that has helped and that has also helped us to get more feedback on how they feel and you know any improvements that we can make. Um, so that has helped in a, you know pretty much in a two-way uh, scenario. It's interesting that recently, I mean, there was the online MBA rankings were released. Uh, Otago was number 10 news. Um, so there is a system already that students are used to learning online. I mean, these are big MBA programs where students spend thousands of dollars doing an online MBA with uh, a bit of campus interaction uh, thrown in. So I think th th there's a lot of lessons to be learned for us uh, as well as in it from, from those kind of systems that are already in place. I think uh, Massey does their online MBA here, so does Otago. And there are a number of big schools overseas like INSEAD and uh, uh, IE Madrid who do their online MBAs, which are very popular uh, and cost, uh, cost a lot of money, but students are still very interested in doing those online programs. Yeah. But I suppose I, I, I do see online learning as a tool to help uh, assist in circumstances like this and to perhaps create opportunities for a blending, blended learning model. Mm. But mm. I do agree also with the findings of the student survey, surveys that a greater experience is achieved, certainly when they're coming to study in New Zealand by having face-to-face -face learning. That, that's what the feedback our students saying they can cope with studying online they they enjoy studying online but they val very much value the face-to-face -face, uh, learn teaching and learning experience that they get and I, I suppose that's the difference isn't it there is a difference between learning online and learning in another country whatever the learning mm. model is absolutely I think yeah, that's, that's what that's yeah. what the Kind of seek and when they come um, and and I guess invest so much money and come into um, and you know do, to um, study overseas, isn't it? That they mm. actually experience the country and not only the education but the country as well. The whole range. The whole things, range. Yes. It's it's a package that mm. uh, they're looking mm. for rather than mm. just an online you know component. That's right. I mean, the survey results clearly indicated that the students come to experience another country as much as, and they learn from that as much as they do from the academic experience. So I think there will, you know, things will emerge and, and definitely a lot of the theory can be learned in an online environment, but a lot of our programs are about learning skills as well. So, yep. um, you know, they're, they're very practical programs. So yep. I think there's True. still going to be a need for those work placements. And, yep. um, mm. but I do think there's an opportunity to embed internationalization into the content and to involve students from our partner institutions overseas in the learning too. I think yes. that's a great opportunity that could come out of this. I mean, yes. I noticed that a lot of other countries are struggling um, moving to completely online delivery. Mm. And the blended model definitely works better, doesn't it? Yeah. And I think what yeah, we've seen... Yeah, it's one of the things on times higher education. 
sorry philip but the, the, yeah just on that online thing uh, there was an article on times higher education where they're talking about whether online teaching can be sustained for extended periods of time if this lockdown or border closures continue uh, for however long uh, can it be extended for long periods of time well i think different no, programs no can it be sustained basically oh sustained hmm i think so but again i think there'll be different people learn and like to learn in different ways don't they so so there'll be those that thrive and embrace it and others that unfortunately aren't able to for whatever situation they find themselves in um professionally or as a, a preference in terms of styles of learning who just switch off mm -hmm. and opt out i think too we're in a very unusual situation with people being in lockdown so they're it's not only their learning that it's affected it's their socialization as yes. well and yes. that's, that's, that's right. and their ability to manage their own time too yeah yeah, yeah. So, now what so i was going to say is... about partnerships uh, institutional partnerships right. i totally agree with uh, blended learning and the ability for our um, students who are uh, in partner institutions offshore to engage and one thing that's been really heartening to come out of this is the importance of the personal relationships and the relationships we have with our institutional partnerships around the world and that we've all reached out and supported each other in these times absolutely but yes. do you think this uh, has changed the way we uh, we think about student recruitment in the future has has covid-19 changed the way we we think about student recruitment in the future i think it's starting to i think um certainly we're very reliant on agents as a channel of um, recruitment for in New Zealand and it varies between institution but we're certainly heavily reliant on our agent relationships I think some of our agents will uh the ones who survive this crisis will be the ones who can be a bit innovative and adaptable and can stay in touch with their clients during the down period where the borders of countries are closed. Um, and then we can see already that they're very adaptive in some countries and putting on webinars and, and really um, keeping in touch well with our potential students. We haven't had a great success in the past with digital marketing and those kind of channels. Um, despite a lot of investment by many different governments in that channel of recruitment, it doesn't seem to be as successful as face-to-face -face, uh, counselling and events overseas where people can meet people from home countries. But I think you'll probably see a bit of a blend of both things, you know, where maybe people talk to institutions remotely, but then follow up with face to face. And that's what happened in China with some agents that tried to change completely to digital marketing. And now they've come to a, a bit like online learning, they've now come to a more of a blended operation because the complete digital did not work for them. Yeah, yeah I agree. Yeah. I think technology is a tool that can support what we're trying to achieve, but you cannot replace face-to-face -face human conversations and interactions in a physical environment. I mean, they hold so much more value beyond 
word exchange through technology. I guess it also helps us um, whilst you know keeping those face-to-face -face interactions helps us to um, think beyond um, you know in, in the traditional recruitment methods as well you know it takes out the barriers around time and space and the physical distance and enables us to think of recruitment uh, beyond market visits um, you know and in a way in, if the, the opportunity there I guess is we could look at cost-effective ways of reaching out um, to our markets and you know, measure the activity digitally and see, you know, what sort of imprints we get um, and be more agile in our responses to the whole student decision-making journey itself, um, you know, without relying completely on agents or physical market for recruitment. So it does open up a new piece, which I guess you need to get used to, or people are just getting used to, but this is the perfect um, opportunity yeah. and the test ground, I guess, to see how, you know, um, effective it is, yeah. how effective it can be. And beyond, you know, has it changed the way we think about student recruitment? Of course, another dimension to this is, of course, it's highlighted for us the, the importance of flexibility in delivery. So not just the online learning or blended learning, but something else like staggered intakes. So having more than, mm. say, the two traditional intakes yep. a year in those programmes where you're able to. So it means we need to be responsive to what the student, what the market wants, and not necessarily what we want to deliver or have the resources to deliver. So I suppose that depends on capacity and resources, resource allocation as well. I guess collaboration between ITPs would help uh, as right. well. I mean, if, uh, if one of the outcomes is, say, more offshore delivery, um, that's when uh, we can pooling resources across uh, the sector. Yeah. And uh, I guess that, that will be a plan B when things like this happen, uh, where we cannot get students onshore. Uh, if we have an offshore delivery model, uh, maybe that would help sustain it while we get things uh, organized here. Yeah, I suppose, but that requires the borders restrictions being lifted both ways, doesn't it? So it's not just about students being able to come here, but it's about us and our teachers being able to teach um, offshore, whether it be online, but also equally importantly in person. There's certainly some um, opportunities to engage the learner before they leave their home country. So I mm. think there may be more of that happening in the future. You know, where people start to study mm. before they actually arrive in New Zealand. Right, things like foundation programs, that they referring to something like foundation programs or just uh, the initial part of a mainstream program? Um, well, there's opportunities for orientation online. There's opportunities mm. for, for um, definitely English language and foundation learning prior to arrival. Um, opportunities mm. to have virtual campus tours before they even arrive, all those yep. sorts of things. Yeah, absolutely. Collections and things like that, which they can't do at the moment. But I agree, some of the programme could be taught in advance online. Um, but obviously, we'd need to work with, in terms of post study work rights settings, we'd need to work with Immigration mm. New Zealand to ensure that uh, those aligned with what the student was able to achieve once they come and study in New Zealand. Mm, I think it's quite exciting. We, there's a, quite a lot of things we could look at in the future that could enhance the student experience. They could arrive better prepared for what they're coming to. 
there's introduction to Maori culture before arrival, all those sorts of things. Mm. An introduction to mm. key staff, you know, actually having some conversations like we're having um, today could happen before the student arrived in New Zealand, which would be quite exciting for them. And yeah, um, yeah they know what who they're going to meet on arrival um, and what their roles are and all those sorts of things. Uh, I read something really interesting earlier today about universities UK calling for a return to student number controls um, to deal with uh, situations. I don't, I don't know whether, what do you guys think of that. Is is that something too drastic a step uh, and something from which we cannot come back if, uh, if something like that happens? What do they mean from different countries? They've got mm, mm, basically control the number. Yeah, yeah, cap cap the number of international students uh, maybe can be recruited just to prevent institutions from becoming over-reliant on uh, students from a particular country or international students in general. Oh, I see. I don't think we're in the same position, are we? Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's an economic argument like supply and demand. Um, so if you've got a high demand, then you cap the numbers. Is that what you mean? And also, uh, we want to manage the, the diversification. That, uh, yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. More, more, diversity more diversity so, so you're not tied in. Well, it's a dangerous one, that one, because uh, you can turn the tap off very easily if you don't have a welcoming approach to everybody. So Yes. And isn't it about the quality of the student? I suppose it depends, doesn't it? I'd rather have high quality students from a small number of countries than variable quality from a diverse range. Sure. Yeah, that's quite a good debatable point. I do think that we've got a wonderful opportunity in New Zealand with the way that we've managed this from a health perspective. I think if New Zealand was able to promote itself as a COVID free country, being a small country a long way away from other countries, that is an island nation, I think that we've got a huge opportunity to be a premier destination. Yeah. And I think the last thing I would do in this situation because of how New Zealand's coped with this to date, and it's still, you know, that's still a fine line between how it goes one way or the other, but we could turn the closed border situation to one of advantage and I definitely would not be reducing fees because if we become a, we market ourselves as a premier destination that other countries cannot compete with, we would have a huge market advantage. Yeah, I agree with Absolutely. you both. Absolutely, um, yeah. Keep, maintain the quality, don't discount fees. No, yeah. no. I Just think really one risk I see though is English language. I think it's really important that we ensure that these um, schools survive because 10 years after the Christchurch earthquake, none of those English language schools that closed are in business anymore. So we need to learn from that experience and really support the English mm. language schools through this crisis because they do feed into tertiary. Absolutely. And even our English language programs in our institutions are at risk in this kind of situation because of the nature of the study that they come in on a regular basis. And so as students exit, we're not getting the replacement students able to come in with the borders closed. So 
I think the government needs to move quite fast on that. I think it's a huge risk for our industry. Yeah, and because of course they get groups of students of different types and many of those are using the English language experience, study experience as a taster for what they might decide mm. to do in the future, mm. as well as those students who are studying English language as a pathway into um, tertiary level study. Yes, that's right, because we have a good reputation in a lot of those English language markets for a very high quality product. Mm. And, um, if we lose, it's a, it's a branding exercise too. So if we lose those students from New Zealand diversity, but we also lose a lot of, um, you know, the, that branding um, advantage. Absolutely. So just wanted to add that these students, also the ones who come in for English language and then pathway and actually stay um, um, for longer periods of time. So they are actually longer. Um, you know, customer of ours in terms of, um, you know, the, the, the uh, le learning experience they choose to have. So, so they're definitely valuable to, um, you know, look after. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the smaller English language schools also do English plus, don't they? Where it's yes. a combination of English plus tourism or voluntary activities and the border closure uh, has a massive impact on them. So yes. I guess, how, how can we influence the government uh, in terms of opening up the borders uh, under level two or level one? Are we prepared uh, for if the government opens up the borders for international students, are the institutions prepared and what can we do to be prepared uh, in such a scenario? I think we I think have to keep the channels of communication open, really. Um, we need to talk through the scenarios and if the government's going to have a staged approach, what what's is the government going to open to Australia first? I've heard that being talked about. That doesn't really help us in international education. Certainly helps the tourism industry. Mm. But um, we need to look at what markets they're likely to be. Uh, you know, they they're obviously looking at the health situation in different countries and deciding which ones are safer to open or are they just going to go global immediately what what's what's the plan that's what we need to talk to them about and then we also need to talk to them about the difference between tourists and students because students are long-term visitors to our country yes and they add significant value to the economy tourists you can't really quarantine tourists because they're they're not here long enough <laughs> they, they're not going to be no. <laughs> thinking that they would come for a, you know and quarantine for two weeks i don't think unless you're looking at a very high-end tourist that's looking for a safe place to hibernate until this epidemic's over <laughs> we may have a few of those <laughs> but i think you said the key word is plan you know if they are going to have a plan can they communicate that with us in a timely way? Because, I mean, we've been talking about having, asking for as much prior notice as possible of borders reopening so that we can prepare and plan and communicate with students so that they themselves can do their planning. Because let's say they um, opened all the borders on 1st of January, 2021, and I hope it, heaven's sake, it's not as, as long as that, but who knows? Um, then 
you know, very few students are going to be able to come in at that time because they won't have had sufficient notification to make all the necessary arrangements. I guess there's going to be challenges with flights. Potentially, they might not have got their visas coming through. And we and, and now we're getting lots of questions. I'm sure you all are um, from students yeah. about when are we going to be able to come. And so it's high on their mind. And so any information we could give them um, in advance in order to help um, them prepare for it, but also us as institutions to prepare for it as well, um, in terms of all the factors that operationally that we're going to have to um, look after so that they get the best possible transition into study when they arrive. Yeah, I think there's a strong argument that the cost of quarantine is worthwhile for international students. Yes. We probably also need to identify the countries where the risk is comparatively lower so we could have a staged approach. And are you for kind of say, okay, let's, if you open the borders up, shall we just have flights coming into Auckland or Christchurch, for example, open up into two cities so it's easier to quarantine students? And would that be something where institutions can collaborate and cooperate with quarantine facilities? having students spend 14 days and then moving into their respective institutions. Uh, would, that, would that be a, a one way of going about this? We've certainly looked at that in the Canterbury region. The three major tertiaries are talking about shared quarantine facilities already, yeah. yeah. And I think we can work closely with the government to provide this confidence if we have enough notice of border restrictions being lifted. That's the key. I think it's, like you said, uh, Philippa, it needs to be planning taking place right now about how that's going to be managed because the planning is, it will make it um, a much better experience for the providers, but for more importantly, for the students, for the students. themselves. Yeah. Yes. Yep, and, and it gives an assurance to the student as well, uh, you know, uh, because they're, they're looking at questions uh, answers to the questions as well in terms of safety and you know all of that stuff particularly you know younger students with you know their, their parents so I guess it's, it's a you know two-way thing in terms of assurances yeah Definitely. and I think it reflects the New Zealand brand so to speak about welcoming and taking care of uh, our visitors and our students that's right. Yeah, I think we've done the repatriation really well. And if we could do the opening up equally as well, then it would it would be very well received in all our markets. And our agents would appreciate it as well because it yes. would give them some security of because at the moment mm. it's very difficult for them to promote New Zealand. Yes. Because There's we have no message no, that people can put out. We have no clear information on post-study work rights. We have no clear information on quarantine. We have no clear information mm. about when the borders are going to open. So those things are very, very important. I think Australia is facing something similar with uh, the post-study work rights issue. Um, I think the Australian border control, they have, they've been pretty firm on the post-study work control uh, issue. So the universities and institutions there um, are, are a bit upset at the moment that there'll there'll be a big loss. Uh, just like what the university sector here advised this morning that there could be a five hundred million dollar loss if international mm -hmm. students are not allowed in. And there was an opinion that because of the increase in domestic students taking up uh, tertiary study due to job losses, um, it might not be that bad. Um, 
do you think that would be that would be applicable to the ITP sector? Do you think we can cover up for the loss of international students, uh, maybe for the next uh, year or so? We might be able to financially, but we are looking at a very high need for highly skilled um, people in the workforce. And compared mm. to other times in history when we've gone through a recession, at this time in our history, we are going to feel the impact of an aging population in the workforce. So we're still going to need younger workers and skilled, highly skilled workers. I mean, Canterbury region's a good case in point because research shows that due to the aging population in Christchurch, we're going to need 30,000 additional workers by 2030. Mm. And that's not going to happen from the domestic um, population. No, not from not just retraining people. them, no. No, there's yeah. not enough people, so. Um, and also there's going to be a gap in, you know, during the retraining process itself. So there'll be a huge hole to fill then, you know, and um, even do domestics when they retrain for a year or so, um, you know, that's, that gap is still there to fill up. That's so. right. So it's really still about attracting the right type of students, quality um, over quantity, which um, Philip and Fahan have both talked about, I think. You know, getting the right students, the quality students, the students that already have some skills when they come to New Zealand that we enhance and um, direct them to the industries that we need the, these skills in. But this is a global problem. And so I think New Zealand sometimes is a little remote and doesn't realize how competitive it is to get these people and um, our lifestyle is going to be a great attractor, especially if we come through this crisis well, which is every indication that we will. It's, New Zealand is going to be a very attractive place to attract the right type of people. So I think we'd really need to focus on that. Yeah. I think it's quite exciting, but I think it just worries us all that there are so many things that the government is grappling with, they may take the eye off the ball with this one. I mean, that's, yeah. we talked about uh, the borders being opened up. So I was just uh, wanting to ask about the role of NZQA and Immigration New Zealand in this, uh, in helping the sector overcome some of these challenges. So we talked about uh, uh, borders being opened up and enough notice being given to providers about when the borders might open up so it can help us plan better. Um, what about NZQA? Uh, I mean, a lot of the English language tests, for example, have gone online now. IELTS Indicator, TOEFL, uh, Duolingo. There's so many alternatives to uh, traditional English language tests. But ITT sector, for example, is bound by NZQA rules, uh, which currently only allow onshore students uh, to take up um, the indicators or the online tests. Yes. Because the university sector is free to uh, consider these tests, and they already are. How can we get NZQA on board? Yeah, I think we need, to work, we need to work with NZQA. They need to work with the sector to support more flexible policies to assess English language proficiency and capability. Because as you say, the current system offers limited choice and that's yeah. exacerbated further under the current circumstances. So for example, with IELTS mm. test centers and TOEFL test centers closed, um, in countries offshore. So 
it gives limited opportunities for students to be able to take the necessary tests to demonstrate their English language capability to meet our entry requirements. Definitely a time to be flexible and adaptive, but it's really about weighing up the risks and mitigating any risk effectively. So it is about working with English language testing um, authorities or, or, you know, the, the people who are experts in this area to come up with solutions, I think. And, and one of the thoughts we've had, of course, is, you know, as a temporary measure, there's perhaps an opportunity to offer on the online proficiency tests that are already approved by NZQA, the individual institutions. Um, delivered a couple of years ago. Would, would that be applicable to offshore students who want to come in yes, for mainstream programs? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and maybe it could be they could be made available to all institutions in the sector. Mm. Could be a centralised um, delivery, but students were taking them regardless of which institution they were going to study at. Yeah, it's really about being open to new ideas, isn't mm. it? Yeah. I think in a time like this, you really have to have a government department that is acting in a supportive way mm, and absolutely and listening to the ideas that are put forward. And then definitely that it's their job to quality control, but they should have the expertise to do that, to do it in a, in a um, way that opens up the industry and helps, helps the industry to survive. Definitely. I mean, we talk about the border closures. Um, part of the problem is that Immigration New Zealand processes visas offshore in Mumbai and Beijing. Those offices are closed as well. Mm. And we don't know when they will open. So even if the borders do open up, uh, Philippe, you mentioned uh, about visas. I mean, students getting visas, uh, bank loans, uh, showing funds because immigration requires say six month funds in some countries so things like that do you guys think immigration new zealand will be flexible uh, when it comes to the issue of funding um, living expenses uh, did their offshore offices close how prepared immigration new zealand would be to process visas when the borders open for international students I don't know how flexible, I can't possibly say how flexible <laughs> it might be in terms of funding and that's aspect of risk management, but certainly in terms of visa processing times. I think we've got the example, haven't we, of last year when we had um, the centralisation of activities in Mumbai where there was this huge backlog and they worked with us as institutions to identify solutions in the end, which resulted in their ability to um, get information from us to help prioritize our student visa applications based on when the student, uh, where they were sitting in the pipeline, I suppose, and where, when they were intending to study. There's gonna be a much bigger backlog, clearly, under this mm. situation. And my understanding uh, currently is that they're intending to process visas on the basis of when the visa has been submitted well we might need to reconsider that approach as and when they're able to start operating again but uh, i know they've had a lot of experience in managing high volume and providing solutions to these backlogs last year that i hope that they um, have learned a lot from and be able to support us to achieve the outcomes we're looking for in 2021 
I suppose there is an advantage that the, everything they, all the processing is online. So mm. that is an advantage, but with the closure of their offshore offices and the staff coming home to New Zealand and working from home, I understand that there is an issue because of security reasons. So, right. so under level two, we may find that they are able to process some offshore applications. Um, at the moment, they are only processing onshore applications. So that's a problem. But also, I guess they're waiting like us for direction about when the borders will open because it's a bit senseless to process all the semester two mm. applications to then find that the students can't get here. Mm. So we may find this unfolds a bit and over the next two weeks. That's what I'm hoping for <laughs> once a bit more clarity comes um, about the opening of the borders, I guess. And the other thing we've got, of course, are flights flights into the country. That's yeah. right. Considering most uh, companies have grounded uh, their fleet uh, mm. for them to restart flight, it might be easier from some countries than others. So that, that's another added uh, thing that to, to consider uh, with the visas and everything else that's going on. I think the flights would be quite crucial because even if you give them visas, if they can't get flights to come over, then exactly. it's yeah, the whole purpose. Because some countries, it's not just about international flights, is it? It's about the domestic, the internal domestic. travel as well. Mm. Yes, as we said right at the beginning, the situation is evolving and it, it will be, we mm. will have to be fleet of foot as soon as we get information or we know capability or capacity, we, then we can move. But right now, it's like every direction you look is a roadblock. I think I think we should probably end on a, positive note yeah. so, <laughs> yes not the roadblock so, one so if, yeah yeah if, yeah if, if i were to ask you guys uh best case scenario this year uh, what do you think best case scenario for 2020 what what do you see happening best case is that is that Everything a best case scenario or a wish list <laughs> a wish list a wish list yeah, let's just call it a wish list. Well, first and foremost, we want our population to be safe and well. That is a priority, and I think we do understand that. So we do think that in the long term for our industry, it can only be good if we become a COVID-free country. So if we can achieve that, that would be amazing. And, and then after that, of course, from a business perspective, I'd like the border restrictions to be lifted. This is my wish list. Um, you know, or I, I'm thinking something like September, but can you tell us three months ahead of that? Farana? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think um, it, wish list is yes, at least by September, but at least by September, if, we, if not all, um, if we can open up for some countries that are, um, you know, um, have minimized the risk as well. That would also, you know, um, help both ways, I guess. So, um, but something happening this year anyways, uh, rather than, you know, borders opening up in January, you know, yeah. uh, would be good. Um, and if it is a staggered process, then so be it. But as Philippa said, if we can have three months notice in advance, that'll be fantastic because we can just, you know, utilize the opportunity in whatever way it comes. <laughs> Yeah, I guess that well, means I, I hope the 
need a decision and then we mm. can work from that if we mm. and and really realistically with visas and flights you do need at least a two to three month period to make that intake successful so i think we definitely know from the survey we've got students who want to come and i think that's the best news of all yes there is still students wanting to study in new zealand which is great and we just then yeah, need definitely. to be able to give them an implementation plan of how we're going to get back to yes. delivery and of course beth we've still got students who are our current students who unfortunately were caught offshore when the pandemic broke and they weren't able to come back to complete yeah that's medicine. right yeah they are a really big worry because we mm. know the northern hemisphere will have a september intake at least mm. canada has made it very clear they will um, mm. and other countries will probably follow so so that we do run a risk of losing those students yeah yeah so well i hope uh, the powers that be are listening uh, and uh, maybe after this, you never know, they listen to this podcast and uh, voila, things might change and the borders open up. Uh, maybe that, that would probably be my wish list. Yeah, my wish list is well, too that they will listen to us and ask our advice, mm -hmm. not just make uh, decisions without thinking through the operational consequences. Yes, that's so right. We can give them confidence, I think, as well. Working together collaboratively will be the... Uh, way to go um absolutely and communication that's what we need we really do need communicate both communication and consistency from those government agencies who are working together to solve this um challenge consistency in the messages and information that they're putting out hey look guys thank, thank you so much for being on my podcast i think that's been really useful and uh, i do hope uh uh, who will so, listens to this um, once I post it also finds it quite useful. I think we've covered quite a wide range of uh, um, uh, topics and subjects today. So thank you all for coming in and joining me today. Uh, thank you, Beth, Philippa, and Farana. Thank and, you. Um, thank I hope you, to see Sush. you again on this uh, at some stage in the future. Great. Thank you, Sush. Yeah. Thank you, Sush. Thank you very much. And that's a wrap on the first episode of uh, International Education Intel podcast. Uh, please post your comments or feedback. I really do value them. And stay tuned as I bring you more content uh, every week. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me, Sushmeti Kurke. Thank you. Mm -hmm.